Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, educator, world-traveling bassist from the Netherlands, Tony Overwater. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Tony Overwater with us. Did I get the name correct? Yeah, that's correct, yes. Okay. Actually, uh, the words are the same in Dutch and in English. Overwater, overwater. Can you introduce yourself to the people, please? Well, yeah. So, I'm, I'm a bass player. My name is Tony Overwater. I've been playing bass for uh, over 35 years now. I'm um, doing lots of different projects. Um, I originally had a jazz education, but uh, after that I also ventured into more free jazz and in oriental music, uh, meaning Arabic music and Persian music. And um, I composed music for, for documentaries and stuff like this. And um, But yeah, I still mainly feel a, a jazz double bass player. Okay. Now, I know nothing about Persian music or Arab music in general. So, if there's anything you want to tell me or teach me about, <laughs> how did you get into that? Yeah, well, actually, the, that was when I was on tour in Syria. And that was before the war. It wasn't Syria. So, that's uh, quite a, some time ago, around 2000, a little bit before that. And um, we toured there with a, a jazz trio, the Yuri Honing trio. And uh, we just got in touch with the music and with the musicians. And, and we started collaborating with musicians. And uh, yeah, their uh, deep love for this kind of music grew. And then later on, uh, I started working with Rembrandt Friedrichs, Dutch piano player. And he was really into Persian music as well. So then we had our um, connection with Iran and were often, quite often there. Um, so I'm traveling also a lot, not, not the recent two years, but I, I did do that quite a bit. And in a way, it's, it's, if you listen to the album that we're going to discuss, the Crescent and John Coltrane, there are connections with uh, Arabic music and, and modal music. So, yes, there's, there's definitely a connection. Okay. Well, you brought up the album also, so yeah. let's just go into that. First of all, respect to your engineer. I love what he did. Where yes. and how did you record that? We recorded it in a small church in the middle of the Netherlands. Um, it's a former church. It's a wooden church. And um, the, the recording engineer, Frans de Rond, he's a specialist in, in these kinds of recordings. Uh, it's just a beautiful place to play. It was like in the middle of winter. Uh, it's not often snowing in the Netherlands, but it, was, it just snowed. And uh, the whole surrounding, the whole forest was full of snow. So it was quite a unique setting. And the sound, uh, yeah, he just has these in incredible microphones and, well, everything, the whole equipment and the whole concept of his recording is, is very pure and, and yeah, yeah, personal, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was just saying that's something that really caught my attention mm. from the first note. And how did you decide this project? And how did you get, I'm going to butcher it name. <laughs> yeah. Azilko? No. Uh, yeah, Atsuko. Atsuko. I think her, 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 I mean, her official name is Atsuko, but she, in, in her, like, as an artist, she's called Atsuko, which is slightly easier, I guess. Atsuko Kohashi. She's Japanese. She lives in the Netherlands for quite some years. Um, and we met a couple of years ago and we started playing together and it really clicked. And we recorded one album called Virgo with a, a trumpet player. 
And then uh, after that, we thought, well, it would be really nice to also record a duo album. Um, and while rehearsing, she brought in some songs by John Coltrane. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But, you know, we don't have a saxophone. Um, uh, yeah, how, how are we going to do that? She said, yeah, but listen to the compositions. They're just so beautiful. And I really want to try and do them. And you can play the melody. And I was like, okay, on the bass, why not? Uh, so that's that's how it started. And then I was like, she actually has a point because by just playing the melodies on a different instrument, it highlights the compositional qualities of the, the music of John Coltrane, where it's so it's so mixed with his sound and with his improvisations that we almost forgot how, forget how, how incredible these compositions are as well. No, I agree. And now that you mentioned you have a free background, like a free jazz background, that yes. probably explains to me more why it actually worked better between you two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I had a sort of a dream start after my conservatory, and um, in so it was in the nineties. I no, well, the eighties actually. I studied at the conservatory in The Hague, and at the very last uh, year, um, I went to a concert with um, uh, David Murray, Sonny Murray, and Fred Hopkins. But Fred Hopkins uh, was sick, um, was in the hospital, and they found a substitute bass player. And he was a classical bass player, and it didn't work out at all. And I was I was a little cocky at the time, and I said to, to well, the director of our school, who was also at the concert, said, oh, I, th- I think I can do a better job than that. And he said, okay, you know, let's go backstage and try. And uh, so we talked to David uh, Murray, and uh, he said, well, okay, you can do one song and see how it goes. And then he, he put me on stage. He said, do you know Sentimental Mood? I said, well, yeah, I know that. And then we walked on stage. He said, let's do something free first. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's new for me. I, I had quite a bebop training. And then um, we started playing free. And he, after 10 minutes of tenor saxophone solo, he, he left the stage. And he said, okay, it's, you know, he, he just pointed at me, said, okay, bass solo. And then he, he just disappeared. And I was playing my solo. And after two or three minutes of a polite bass solo, I thought, okay, this is my, you know, that, that's my turn. And Sonny Murray was sitting next to me and never been around him. So, and then he's a quite an intense drummer and person. I was like, whoa. So, uh, but David didn't show, didn't come back for a couple of minutes. So I sort of kept on going, I finished the song. And then he said, okay, you're going to stay the rest of the set. And then, um, uh, long story short, uh, I ended up doing the rest of the tour with him in Europe and later recording an album with David Murray in Italy, and I've been often yeah, and playing and hanging out with uh, with Sonny Murray, and it was an incredible chance for me. That's like a living, you know, with jazz history on your side. So um, yeah, so that was my free jazz entrance. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's kind of you know what that reminds me of that Miles uh, Winton situation when Winton yeah. just walked on the stage and started playing against like yeah, I like the Eagle though. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. I wish we had kind of more of that because yeah. it pushes well, even the veteran artists to perform better. But yeah. No. Nice, man. You just jump in there yeah. without playing in sentimental mood, took a two-minute solo and just got the gig. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was quite an adventure. Um, and for me to be, like, I was 23 or 4. I was just, like, in the last year of school and... and hadn't done any international touring so suddenly I'm on the road with three jazz well two jazz musicians and a and a manager and uh, you know 
traveling through Europe, you know, and living the, for me, living the life and then having these endless long stories by Sonny Murray, talking about John Coltrane, talking about his meetings with uh, Scott LaFerro, with, uh, you know, with, with, with all the other great artists that he worked with or, you know, met. So that was incredible. Yeah. Okay, give me one of the stories. So you're in a random city. He just says what? Go. Well, <laughs> Come on. Uh, let me see. A polite story. Well, I was you, fired once. We were in, in Austria and I, I was like, this was my first you know, tour and there was this uh, girl <laughs> uh, who was uh, with us uh, in Austria and I liked her and we hang out and, and then... Um, we left uh, uh, the, the city and then Sonny decided that I didn't play well that night because I was, as he uh, says, well, I should beep this probably, but I was <laughs> sick uh, and I, I didn't perform well. So then he fired me in the train and we were traveling back to France for hours and I was really young and depressed and I was like, oh, and then three hours later he said, no, let's go to the next gig and let's do that. So uh, yeah, that, was, that was interesting. Um, and then just all the stories he talked about uh, uh, Miles and about, you know, uh, Coltrane and, and his fights with, well, trying to be, he was the drummer, of course, with uh, Cecil Taylor. And Cecil wanted to have another drummer next to him because he was a great free player, but he didn't play any tempo. So all these inside stories were so incredible to hear and also so relatable in a way, you know. I mean, for us, they're like incredible stories, but when you talk person to person, it's like, yeah, you understand how these personal dynamics go between these musicians as well. Yeah, yeah, that's something I always wondered. So, if something is clicking that well, do you really mm. need to like the people in your band? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I actually think it's, it's often the opposite. And and there's of course many stories, like the the, the famous album "Money Jungle" by by Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington with with Mingus and and. Max Rhodes and they were fighting in the studio and they created one of the best albums in, in music history. And that was often the case. And um, with David and Sonny, um, it, it was very good, but actually <laughs> uh, David and Sonny once got into a fight and, and uh, on, um, in, on the middle of the highway and they were chasing each other, you know, around the van. So that, that was also quite intense uh, and a new thing for me. But... Um, uh, then it took a couple of years before they started playing together again, but um, they always respected each other. Yeah, it's just that, well, I can't really use many modern jazz groups because we don't really have many mm. like that, but in rock and just history of jazz, it's like person A doesn't get along with person B, refuses to be in the studio with them, and it's yeah. like, so that legendary thing will fall apart. And yeah. then they never account to anything as good as where mm. they were at that moment. So, Yeah, I guess it brings you to a peak performance, you know, in a way. And if you're co too comfortable, I always compare, I uh, used to have two trios, and one trio was a very successful trio, and we worked a lot, but we were not that close of friends. Uh, but we really kept each other on our toes. And, and the other trio was like three friends, and we, we always had a great time and hanging out and playing, but we never had so many gigs and never not so much success because it was just too comfortable. Uh, and the other group was more like, you know, we were so different that we each had our different qualities, and this all together created a group that, that worked really well. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. I just know. It's just stuff that yeah. I've seen that just made me go like, eh. So. Yeah. When you were doing these compositions with her, which song to you personally stood out the most? 
I think the wise one is one I really like. Um, I think that's also the one where I sort of have this um, a little bit of a, uh, a Arabic improvisation in it halfway, which sort of really reminded me of that that music. Um, yeah, but and my biggest struggle was with the song Crescent, the the actual song uh, Crescent. Um, because she wanted me to bow the whole thing, uh, the introduction and bowing is also already not my first business. And on a bass with gut strings, it's even more difficult. So that that <laughs> took a lot of swearing to to get it. But uh, yeah, I like it. In the end, I like it, um, and it was good. She pushed me, so you know. Well, that came out good, also. And just mm. because I'm a loser, I'm just curious: was it a French bow or a German bow? A German bow. Okay. <laughs> How many bass players yeah. like French bows? I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I started on French bow, but my teacher was John Clayton, and and oh. he he was playing. He said, "If you're standing up, German bow is easier to play," and I, I agreed, and uh, yeah, I liked it. Okay. Okay. Mm. So one other thing I need to know about because something that always catches my attention. I'm a big fan of Yui. You played with him for a few years. Yeah. How did you get that gig? And with you, ha- yeah, with Yuri, yes, <laughs> ah, yeah. Uh, well, that was uh, no, I was still during conservatory, they were studying another city here in, in, in the Netherlands, and I just won this award. And they sort of knew about me, and then they said, Okay, let's do it. And we worked together for 25 years, and then and it, it, that was the band which felt less comfortable, uh, but was very successful. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, no, that's quite all right. I mean, we we are uh, we're friends, but and it it's always like you know you have these friends and you're always sort of struggling with them. And and with Yuri we had that, but and then we split up uh, a couple of years ago. I think already ten years ago. And then actually last month he called me to start a new band. So that's actually very nice. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that because I mean Yuri is just an incredible character and uh, strong personality and. Um, and yeah, and Joost, the drummer, uh, is also a very clear friend, d- dear friend, and we all live like a kilometer away from each other. So, you know, we're, we're still good friends. It took a while, you know. It's like a, it's like a relationship that ends because you know it has to end, and then it, f- it still feels, you know, painful for a couple of years, and then you remember the good times. And and we had some just actually just before the whole Corona thing. There was the last gig I did was with Yuri and Joost, where I was subbing for their bass player, and we were in Norway. And it was very emotional, actually, to be together again after 10 years. And um, we really enjoyed it. So, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, I did know that was the band, I swear. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> that's quite all right. <laughs> so what, if you're willing to tell me, because like I said, yeah. what was one of the bashing situations you had? Uh, with Yuri... Um, well, Yuri doesn't really like the big... Yost likes traveling and going to India and going to Africa and going to wherever we went. I mean, with them, I went... That's the group I went with to Syria with for the first time, uh, Yuri and Yost. So, and Yuri just doesn't like that. So he gets, you know, into uh, uh, quite a bad mood sometimes. And uh, and Yost and I really like to sort of, you know, adventure and go in old part of the town and, you know, bikes as, uh, 
Uh, Yuri says uh, that Joost is buying pebbles, but uh, we think we're buying very precious rocks, you know. So, but <laughs> I mean, it's very, very, it's a very nice dynamic. Uh, but uh, definitely, um, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, if you're, if you're, well, actually, um, the first time we went on tour together was to Norway um, and we traveled in a um, camper. Uh, and it was March. We have had never traveled that far before, and we had no idea about Norway in a way. And in that time, there were no phones. And Joost, the drummer, he he looked at this little agenda map, uh, like, okay, well, that's about 500 kilometers driving, and it's like going to Paris. It's like five hours. Not knowing that it's snowing and that you know snow tire, you uh, you need snow tires. So we had an accident in the end, and. Um, we missed gigs and we got into the, caught, you know, in the snow and there was quite, I mean, after that tour, we realized, you know, we did calculations on the way home. It's like, okay, if everybody chips in 50 euros, then we're even, <laughs> we didn't make any money. <laughs> and, uh, but we, uh, we had a lifelong band, um, you know, bond. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago. I get off him just after one other question, so... Yeah, sure. Okay. You said that's the first time you pretty much went to the Middle East, right? Hmm. Your first opinion of that when you guys were there and his expressions of it. Yeah, well, yeah, there's actually a video, I think. Uh, it's, it's still online, probably, that we are in... Uh, well, that's actually the probably the second tour, but we were somewhere in Egypt and we were put in this room and it was just so filthy and dirty that we didn't want to stay and that's typically something that that yuri can't handle with um and uh, i don't like it as well but i mean he can't handle it so there was really there was really a challenge but i think yuri also really fell in love with the whole arabic uh, he has so much he had so much benefit from learning Arabic music because for both of us um, and I think also for Joost but especially for me and Yuri uh, playing Arabic music and and finding those microtonalities and having this expression that they have in this Arabic music intense improvisation really helped us define and find our own voice funny enough because you have to realize as a Dutch person when you play Arab, uh, um, uh, jazz it's American music basically you know so for us it's almost it's in a way it's foreign you know you can you can love it for the whole your whole life but and to find your own voice in it it's not that easy but by playing arabic music which was something completely different um we sort of found our own niche and sound and and i think that really helped us come closer to our own core of as a musician okay Oh man, I'm just saying that no. was kind of funny. I didn't know this great stories on top of that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I can see what you mean with the breaking down of the car and making no money. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to all of us, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. All of us have those type of gigs. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one other thing about the album now. Mm -hmm. Are you performing abroad on it? Or are you guys going to be just mainly in Europe? Uh, where, um, well, my, I've played in over 50 countries by now, but I've never been to Japan. So Japan is like very high on my lists. And I hope that when all the, you know, COVID measures are taken down, that we can 
travel to Japan, and that's 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 the first plan we have, and uh, and starting somewhere in Europe as well, and we'll take it from there. I mean, um, it's it's um, um, it's it's just such strange times that I don't have any expectations, you know, um, because it doesn't. I mean, I think the time that we had until two years ago. Uh, is sort of over, and we have to reconsider how we travel, where we travel, how this works out, and uh, there's so many things going on. So, I'm just taking it uh, step by step. But Japan would be a big uh, dream. Okay. Yeah, they have great jazz music over there. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Okay. I mean, that's pretty much interesting. So, under COVID, what did you do during those two years? Well, th- this recording was one of the, the results of COVID. I uh, recorded another album with uh, Raymond Freericks, uh, which is um, a trio album which we called um, A Wind Invisible Sweeps Us Through the World. That's the whole title. We call it A Wind Invisible. But uh, A Wind Invisible Sweeps Us Through the World is an album that we recorded. Also beautiful sound again uh, in a, another engineer, another church, but a church full of uh, uh, church organs, uh, like four or five different organs, and we used them actually. So quite a unique sound there. Um, we, I taught myself to play guitar. <laughs> that was sort of a, a dream. It was like, you know, when it's, you know, in, in during COVID times and you're sitting at home and you can't leave the house and playing bass is really nice, but after two or three hours, you're, you get really tired standing up and it's a demanding instrument. So I thought, you know, it would be nice to learn to play the guitar and, and just sit on the couch and, and play music. So that's what I did. And um, yeah, I'm happy doing that. Okay. So what style have you been practicing on the guitar? Yeah, well, that's so funny when you start playing the guitar. It's nice you mentioned it because guitar has so incredibly many styles and variations. And, and of course, you want to play everything. But um, mainly because I'm also a teacher at the Conservatoire in The, in the Hague, I, I really like to be able to accompany my students. And that's what I, I taught myself is to be able to accompany myself uh, either singing or but definitely more the students. Because usually I would play the piano uh, with my bass students, but if you play the piano, you're sort of facing the piano and you can't really see your students. And with playing the guitar, I can just walk around my students and, and see them and correct them. And, and the guitar, in a way, is more related to the bass with the tuning. So I can easier, you know, show an example of, le- let's, you know, play it like this or play it like that. So, um, yeah, that it's, it's mainly jazz, but... I, my my wife is really in love with uh, Americana music, so so we um, I'm trying to teach her and help her with that as well. So trying different things. Okay, okay. Mm. Actually, since we're on school academic stuff, questions. Mm. So if a, let's just say another student of yours, a bass player, challenged you, how would you take that? Challenged me in what? Like I could do better than you. Ah. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, that would be. I'm, it would be really great. I've one very, um, very talented student. He's from Portugal, and he already plays stuff that I have a hard time playing because he came from the classical department. So he he is like an incredible technique, um, and it's it's just so nice to to see uh, see him uh, challenge me in a way. Um, yeah, what can I say about that? Um, I guess it's. You know, when you're young and it's really about all the technical stuff, 
um, it's really good and it's really interesting. But to be able to tell a story with a few notes, uh, where like one of my big examples is, is Charlie Hayden, of course, but also Mingus, and and these musicians are able to to actually talk with their instruments, you know, and and that's something that that you don't learn from books or from doing arpeggios, you know, that's just something that you have to develop and grow and, and, and live. And so that all, I always keep a little ahead of that with them. <laughs> so that's good. Okay. And what is something that all your students seem to misunderstand about the music world? Huh? Yeah. Well, I think the, the um, one recently called me and he said, well, I got this, uh, I recorded this video and uh, now I want to do concerts and how does it work? And they think there's like this magic thing that makes you get concerts, uh, but it's just, it's just really hard work. Um, it's probably, uh, I spend more time working on that than on, on my bass, unfortunately, but uh, getting the gigs is, is something that requires a lot of skills. Um, it's, you need to... Um, you need to be able to present yourself. You need to be able to uh, to to have a good idea, that a valuable idea, idea that people actually like, that they can talk about. Like with this album, Crescent, mm -hmm. the fact that John Coltrane is being played without saxophone turned out to be a sort of, you know, a unique selling point, uh, USB. Uh, so, it, but that actually helps. It makes it easy. And if you make an album with six great songs that you think are the best in the world, it, nobody will really pick it up unless you create a story with it. And you create a website and you create, you know, you, you call the, the clubs and, uh, and, and it's just hard work and it will never be different. Um, only maybe a few people can just sit by their telephone and wait for the gigs. But um, for most of us and also the famous ones, it's just really hard work. Uh, and I think people misunderstand that most of the time. Okay, that's a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I was never lucky enough to have the phone just ringing off the hook like no. that. <laughs> no. So where do you think jazz would be in 10 years? Um, I think recently, well, jazz always seems to develop itself in a way um, because of the mixtures with other cultures, um, I think in essence, this is how jazz started. Um, but also very soon already in the 50s and the 60s, there's quite some, with an ugly word, are crossover projects. But I think these projects or like, you know, it's John Coltrane being interested in Indian modal music um, or in some other bass player in Arabic music or Brazilian music or, or African or North African or, you know, there's everything um, that's so interesting about jazz that we can really, you know, um, connect to all these kinds of music. And I think one of the special things that I realized about jazz, I was doing um, uh, as, a, as a teacher, I was, I, they were asked me to do a master project, uh, master research. And I did my master research about education systems for jazz double bass. And I realized that if jazz um, was born earlier than that, it wouldn't have become that popular. I think jazz is very much related to the recording techniques. 
if you imagine that we would have played jazz in the in before there were recording techniques there was no way we could listen back to the improvisations learn from the improvisations and and do other ones and 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 that it would spread around the world as it does um because learning jazz is for most musicians listening to the recordings and copying them and listening again and listening again and it's it's not something you that you can you know write down and do so i think it's very close related to the recording techniques and i think that's also the unique thing about it and in a way i can also imagine that that is also something that will keep on being very important to to our music that that it's that we keep it alive and that we use other media and 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 other techniques in order to develop it so do you think it'll be more popular or do you think it will die down it will always be the one percent nation music i mean it's it's we (laughs) i mean i know Uh, i'm negative sometimes on the podcast but when people say it i'm like ah (laughs) yeah but i'm i'm fine with that you know because one percent uh of a village in the Netherlands, you know, might be maybe five people, but one percent of of the global village is is a large population. So I don't mind it. Um, and in a way, it's I mean, there are popular parts in jazz, um, and and there are less popular parts in jazz. And but for me, the important thing is that that jazz is so personal and so close to to our heart and to our expression that it, it really it really. Um, relates to us on an individual level and less on a collective lef- level. So if you have popular music, pop music, um, rock, uh, it, it's more of a collective experience. But as a jazz, jazz lover, when you go to a concert, it's it's your private experience and it's your private outcry, outcry if, you know, in, in, uh, if a certain solo is to your liking or, you know. So I think this the fact that it's so personal um, is also the reason why it's not going to be, hopefully, in a way, so overly uh, popular that because the moment we start to have to relate with big audiences, that's also the moment we lose sort of the core of the music. So I'm I'm fine with it. You know, it's still enough audiences. I mean, sometimes we play for five people, but sometimes we play for twenty thousand people. I played in Iran jazz three well jazz improvised music with a, a Iranian player we played three nights in a row in a theater of 3000 people and it was sold out for three nights and it was like just four like bass uh, drums uh, piano and comanche like a knee violin and people were there and they loved it uh, and like if if that's still there you know then i i can deal with uh, the the five people you know in the small theater in the netherlands every now and then um so yeah i i I think also in this time we we are looking for these experiences for this unique personal experiences so so i'm not negative about it but it's just part of the character of the music i guess uh i will have to disagree with you on that okay tell me (laughs) i'm trying okay so so we use ajax stadium okay Mm-hmm. I how much does that hold fifty thousand? You're yeah. telling me you would not like a jazz act to be able to fill that up at least once a month. Not you see, not even a, once a month, twelve times a year. 
Yeah, uh, you as a uh, as a jazz lover, would you prefer to be there, or would you prefer to be in the BIM house or the the the, the knitting factory or, or or whatever club where you sit, you know, five meters from your hero? Um, I think I prefer to sit, you know, five meters away from my hero. The last time I was in the Ajax Studio, uh, uh, the um, the arena, it's called now. Uh, it was with police actually, so Sting was there. It was like a reunion concert from the police. It was actually very nice. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great actually. You know, Steve Copeland, Stuart Copeland is like incredible still. Um, yeah, so I mean, we actually played for that amount of people when the last time we were in uh, in Taiwan. Um, as a jazz musician, I like it, but there's nothing better than a, a, a small theater sound wise as well you know so yeah i guess for some acts it's really great with jury actually we played in in montreal uh, on an open space for ten thousand people that was also that was nice because then the bass is incredibly amplified and whenever you hit the string it's like boom you know the whole the whole place moves um yeah so i can imagine i, I hear what you say but at the same time i if I want to go to a jazz concert, I prefer to go here to the BIM house in Amsterdam and as a small place which fits maximum two, three hundred people and just, you know, feel and smell the, the band. Okay. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. just me. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, mm. I see the beauty of both, mm. but I just don't see it growing in general as a music form if we're playing mm. against with five people one night then. 300 yeah. people in the next, but mm. okay. <laughs> so, I should say it. Where do you? Th- nah, I don't want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of got me on that question. So, okay. where does go on <laughs> out of your students that are coming up? Any of them really impressing you in just the jazz straight ahead? Anything like that? Um. Yeah, there's some. Uh, I I think the funny thing with students is that that whenever they start, um, they don't necessarily have to be the most talented ones. I mean, it's usually not the talented ones that make it the furthest. I noticed. Uh, also, when I was in school, I I barely made it to the conservatory. Uh, you know, I, I I barely played bass really well, and. Um, but during conservatory, I really developed hard uh, and fast. But mainly, the idea why people, why I'm still in in business and I'm still happy and I'm every year it's getting better is because I I guess I have a, a story to tell and I have a um, I have a vision on on what I want to do, and um, the there are. Some students that have that as well. So I'm I'm looking for those students with those spark in their eyes that you think, okay, he or she is going to be different and is going to push it further. Um, and there's some really good students that play really good jazz, but I'm interested in the ones that are like you know pushing you know the borders a little bit and like ah oh, you know I don't want to do that I want to do that I want to go there you know that that's that that's what sparks my interest. And when you say pushing the borders, what do you mean by they're just willing to try anything or they're just coming up with stuff original that don't really fit? Well, no, I think that that, that you need to, um, if you have a sense of direction, then you 
you feel limited maybe like our education is is where we're pretty strict on the bebop genre uh, although most of the teachers are not necessarily bebop musicians like as a main thing but because very few people can make a living out of that but it's also we see bebop as as the the language latin you know if you want to learn a language if you want to learn french or or spanish or italian Latin is the is the the source, you know. That's where it comes from on that level. Um, if you want to learn to play jazz, bebop is like the highest possible education. Um, I think on a on on an instrumental level and on a on a thinking level and a harmonic level. Um, yeah. So I, I lost your question for a second, but <laughs> other words like it's the student that is willing to experiment within the music yeah. better or the one that brings random stuff from the outside and tries to force it in yeah well not nothing random but but um i always say that all my students should have at least one more interest besides their interest and love for jazz um, because that's where the magic for me happens when they start to work together with like you know indian like what i said before indian arabic music Maybe pop music. Maybe it's something I don't know. But it's it. They need to create their own spark and 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 their own identity. And in order to do that, it it doesn't suffice to just copy uh, great bass players or musicians that were before you. You have to find your own voice. And in order to find your own voice, you you need to relate to it in a in a different way than directly to it. So, for me, I'm happy with whatever they bring on the table and. And then taste and and talent will tell whether that's going to be really successful or not. Okay, like I said, this is one of those things I wonder about. <laughs> mm. Okay, so what would be your perfect project? Like, if you had no budget, no constraints, what would it be, and who would be on it? Ah, yeah. Um, in a way. It's it's sort of a, a, a double thing, but I'm, I was discussing this lately with uh, with uh, Rembrandt, the piano player. It's like um, I'm a big lover of Charlie Hayden. I'm a big lover of free music. So I like the Liberation Orchestra by Charlie Hayden. Um, it's like an all star orchestra with incredible music, incredible arrangements by Carla Bley. But at the same time, that brings a message across that is about more than just music. I mean, his projects were either about the Spanish Civil War, about uh, apartheid in, in South Africa, or about, uh, you know, all the topics that he, he used. And I, I think that is th that is really wonderful. Um, at the same time, I love playing in duos and trios because that's when I'm free to do whatever I want. And when I'm in a bigger group, I need to be so focused on the rest of the music that I sometimes lose the, the fun of just playing my bass. Uh, but that would be sort of like an, and I don't mean all-star in, yeah, well, sort of an all-star musician, like a, a, an ensemble of like 10 people with, which are really just hand-picked and each of them are really nice. So it's not a big band, but it's like, like the, or the Art Ensemble of Chicago or, yeah, Liberation Orchestra or the Charles Mingus uh, uh, bands, you know, like, like that would be sort of my dream. Okay. <laughs> And I shall put this last one. Yes, 
What is the best compliment you ever received? I was going to ask you what is the worst one, but <laughs> I said no. <nah. laughs> uh, let me see. Maybe I can. Uh, the best compliments. Well, I think. Um, yeah, a couple of them comes to mind. I mean, I've, when I was traveling in in, um, in in Iran and playing there. Uh, much like the people in India, they are so incredibly educated in culture and in poetry and in art in general. And it's something we don't know because we only hear the stories about the wars and uh, you know the ayatollahs and all the all the problems there. But the the the, the people there are so incredibly well educated, and when they tell you something, it's so poetic, and it's that really touches me. Um, and, and another uh, sort of funny story for me was because I, I used to do, um, well, still do music for children. I think that's important, mm-hmm. um, education for children, um, and also to get them in contact with jazz. So, so I, I recorded this, this album or two albums and, and went really well. And we did a lot of concerts with them and it was with a Dutch, uh, um, writer and drawer from uh, from books children books and we used to play a lot of concerts and a couple of years after that i i this lady comes up to me she says well you're tony of water from this children book thing about the frog and my daughter always listened to your album and and so much so that whenever she would go to a place like a supermarket or a place and she would hear jazz she would say hey that's frog music so she, in other words, she related the, the the jazz not necessarily with something for grown-ups or something complicated, but for her it was related to her favorite stories. Um, and I think that for me is a big compliment because that's sort of something I wanted to achieve is that, that children are not, you know, growing up with, um, only growing up with, with sort of prefab, children shows and and prefab children music but that they can also listen to classical music and also listen to jazz and also listen to arabic or african music and have a story with that um and feel inspired by that so that was for me a very big compliment because that that's sort of the goal i want to achieve is that people you know look at jazz in a in another way in a more personal way okay well sir Thank you for joining. Could you please tell people your social media, where to find you, the name of your album again, etc.? Yes. Well, so um, yeah, my name is Tony Overwater, so you can easily find me on on the on the web, uh, on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, uh, my own website, and uh, Tony is T O N Y, and Overwater is like you know crossing the water, Overwater. So that's really easy to find, and I'm part of this organization called Tonality, uh, Tonality Music, and that's also uh, quite easy to find. Um, our album Crescent is recorded for my own record label, by the way. It's recorded for Jazz in Motion Records, um, and with this record label, I recorded about 25 CDs in my lifetime and um, I've really enjoyed it. It's a small company, but uh, I can do what I want. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's how to find me. Okay. 
Well, sir, thank you again. Means a lot. And I know it wasn't to say, but I'm looking forward towards your UE, you know, collaboration in the future. <laughs> The Peace Orchestra, yeah. Yes. Well, Yuri wants to record the Peace, we start the Peace Orchestra. So that will be fun, and I hope we will be able to, to tour with that, you know, yes. and join you there. <laughs> okay, sir. Thanks well, for your time and your attention for our music. Anytime, sir. It means a lot. And Le everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>